Today, we are getting back into the book of Galatians. Before Christmas, that's where we were, and we are continuing on. Uh, a little bit about the book of Galatians, because maybe some of you weren't here with us, or it's easy to forget. So, just a little bit about what was going on. Paul took his first missionary journey, and on that journey, he went to a region called Galatia. It was very near where Paul grew up in Tarshish. So Paul goes back to people that he's familiar with, and he goes throughout this region planting churches, preaching the gospel, seeing people convert. He comes back from this journey and rejoices with the church in Antioch. They celebrate that people have trusted in the gospel. But then Paul starts to get reports that there is someone who's come behind him. That there are those who claim to be believers who have come from Jerusalem who are coming to these churches and they're saying, you believe in Jesus? Well, that's not enough. You've got to follow the dietary laws. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to do some additional things in order to have right standing before God. And Paul writes what most believe is his first letter, the book of Galatians, and it's also his most passionate, and some would say angry letter. Paul is upset. And what upsets Paul is not false religion, is not people saying that they believe something different. What upsets Paul most is somebody saying, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, but they've made it something different. When someone says, Christ isn't enough, you've got to add something to Christ's sacrifice. If you're really going to be a Christian, you've got to do something more. And that's what Paul's writing to address in the book of Galatians. So today, we get to a section of Galatians that most scholars say is the most difficult to understand section in Galatians. So our task today is to take this difficult section and make it easy for us to understand and then to ask God, what are you saying to each of us as individuals and as a church in this section? The section today, it assumes the hearer and the reader are familiar with people like Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Mount Sinai, Jerusalem, that were familiar with these key places and key figures that were familiar with Ishmael and Isaac. And if any of those names or those places I just mentioned, if you're going, I don't know who they are, hold on. We'll make sure you understand and you know what's going on in this passage. So we're in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 1. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll start reading in chapter 4, verse 21. It reads, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born, according, uh, born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. 
These two women, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. But what does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, your word does declare that all men are like grass, and all our glories like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word, O oh Lord, your word stands forever. May this be the word that is faithfully preached today, we pray. Unless you speak, nothing of any eternal significance is spoken. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Paul starts off this section. He says, tell me you who desire to be under the law. Paul is speaking to a particular group of people. These are people who want to be under the law. Now, the law. The law tells us do this, don't do that. And there's an assumption. The law gives us guidelines of what to do and what not to do. And some people in their flesh, our flesh actually likes law. And Paul, when he's writing here, he's speaking of the law, those who are under it, in terms of thinking that the law is sufficient to make you right before God. They would rather say, I'm going to try to be good enough. I'm going to try to keep the law perfectly enough. They want to be under the law. So what Paul is going to do, he's going to speak to them from the law. He's going to say, you want to be under the law. Here's what the law says. You see, we mistakenly assume, people do it all the time today, that in the Old Testament, people were made right before God. People were saved by keeping the law. But that was never the case in the Old Testament. The law showed you that you were sinful and you were always saved by Hope in the promise of God. Remember that verse in Genesis 15, 6. It says, Abraham believed God and he was credited as righteous. That's Old Testament salvation. That's how we're saved. We're saved by believing and we receive Christ's righteousness. So here, he's writing to those who want to be under the law. Now, the word law is used a few different ways in our Bible. 
It can mean the Ten Commandments. It can also mean the 613 commandments that follow it. Most often, though, in the New Testament, the word law is used to refer to the entirety of the Old Testament. So what Paul is going to do, he's going to have a three-staged argument. He's going to start with history. Let me show you historically the basis of the law. Secondly, he's going to give an allegory. Here's what this historical event teaches us about salvation. And then he's going to get personal. Here's what it means for you Galatians. Here's what it means for you church. So we're going to see all three of those things. So he starts with the historical argument in verse 22. He said, For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now, for a Jewish person at this time, if you were to say to them, when you stand before God, and he's going to say, why should I let you into heaven? Why should you come into my presence? They're going to say, because Abraham is my great-great-granddaddy. I come from the line of Abraham. I physically can trace my family tree back to Abraham. In fact, John the Baptist addresses that. The Pharisees come to him. And in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, And do you presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Now, where John the Baptist was, he's in a desert. But it's not a sand desert. It's a desert made up completely of stones. And what he's saying is, being a biological child of Abraham is insufficient to give you right standing before God. No, you've got to be a spiritual son of Abraham. And that's what he's going to describe here. These two sons of Abraham. One of them will be a child of faith. One of them will be a child of works. And he mentions two. Look at what he says. Abraham had two sons. One by a slave woman, one by a free woman. You may remember the story, you may not. In Genesis chapter 16, Abraham, he had been promised, you will have as many offspring as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. You're going to be the father of many nations. Yet Abraham had an issue. He didn't have any children. At first he thought that God might fulfill his promise through his nephew Lot. Maybe Lot will get the promise. And that's how God will fulfill it. And God said, no, it's not Lot. And then he thought, well, maybe it'll be my servant Eliezer. And God was very specific with Abraham at this point. He tells him, Abraham, the child of promise is coming from your body. He's going to be your biological, your physical offspring. So Abraham and his wife comes up with a plan. Now Abraham's wife is well beyond child years. She can't have children any longer. So she takes her servant, her slave called Hagar, 
And Hagar, Abraham, one of the things I love about the story of Abraham, he struggles. He'll obey God, he'll disobey God. He'll obey God, he'll disobey God. And you see his walk with the Lord going up and down, up and down, struggling, doing well. And I don't know about you, but when I look at my faith walk, there's seasons I'm doing well, and there's seasons where I go, man, I think I'm walking in the flesh more. And that's Abraham's story. And in a moment where Abraham was walking in the flesh, he ran, he was hungry. Now, God had made him a promise. You're going to have offspring. But Abraham didn't trust the promise. He was hungry, and God didn't tell him to go to Egypt. But Abraham goes, we're hungry. Egypt has food. We'll go to Egypt. God never told him to do that. And in Egypt, he says, my wife, she's my sister. Because he was afraid. He lies. And then, when he leaves Egypt... He picks up a slave named Hagar. So all this started out of Abraham not trusting God to feed his belly. I'm hungry. I don't know if I can trust God. I'm going to run to Egypt. And he comes out of there with this girl named Hagar. So Sarah, his wife, she's an old woman at this point. She says, take Hagar and have a child by her. This is a child of the flesh. Now, for a woman, age 20 to age 40, somewhere around there, to give birth to a child, that's very normal. It's very natural. We may marvel that they've had a child. We may say, praise God, it's a miracle for a child. But none of that, we will go, that's impossible. But for a woman, an 80-year-old woman, a 90-year-old woman, to give birth to a child, that's humanly impossible. That cannot happen. So Abraham tries to have an offspring to fulfill the promise through human means. He takes the slave girl and has a child named Ishmael. And that child, it means God will hear that child will be a child of his own works. He did it. It's not miraculous. He's not looking going, only God can do this. He's looking around everybody else and goes, everybody else's mother had them well before they, she was 80. I don't think any of us in this room, what age was your mother when she gave birth to you? None of us are saying she was 60, she was 70, she was 80. No, that's not what happened. So here, Abraham has this child by his own works. Now, it says there's another child by a free woman. That's Sarah. That's his wife. And Sarah, she gives birth at age 90. Have you ever heard of that? Now, when a woman gives birth, it doesn't make the news, does it? Typically not. But I guarantee you, if a woman, age 90, gave birth to a child anywhere on the face of this earth, it would be global news. Everybody would be talking. A 90-year-old woman gave birth. 
That doesn't happen. It's a miracle that only God can do. And God wants to say, Abraham, I'm going to give you offspring. And you're not going to look and say, I did this. You're not going to say, Abraham did this. You're going to say, only God could do this. These two boys, Ishmael, he's born in slavery. He's born by natural means, by works. And all that flows from Ishmael will be a religion of works. Isaac, he's born free. He's born through a miracle. And just like Isaac was born by a miracle, your salvation is a miracle. You can't save yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't work hard enough. You can't obey the law enough. You can't do anything to save yourself. The only thing you can do is say, praise God, He sent His Son to save me. It's a miracle that you're saved. You're not smart enough to trust Jesus. God opened your eyes. We were dead in our transgressions, and He opens our eyes. Jesus is our Savior, and we trust Him. No works get added to salvation. So we have these two boys, Ishmael and Isaac. And it's interesting. When Ishmael is born, God makes Abraham raise Ishmael before he'll give him the child of promise. Ishmael is 13 years old when Isaac is born. It's as if God says, you raise him, you finish raising the child of your own works, and then I'll give you the child of promise. Now in verse 24, it says, now this is to be interpreted allegorically. Now that word allegory, what that means is there is a story that teaches a deeper message. Typically, allegories are stories that aren't true. They're made up to teach somebody a lesson about life. God, throughout Scripture, will give, at times, allegories. But they're based on real historical events, real people, things that actually happen. And this, he's saying, this story of Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, this story can be used as an allegory to teach you a deeper uh, message. And that's what he's going to show them. Look, these two women are two covenants. Now, when you open your Bible, I can say, turn to the Old Testament. Turn to the New Testament. That word testament can also be translated covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. So the old covenant was misunderstood. They misunderstood it to think if you kept the law, you would be saved. That's a misunderstanding of the old covenant. But he's saying, these women are like the two covenants. One, a covenant that people believe is about works. One that's about grace. One, look, he says, one is from Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? Moses got the law. These are people that are trying to be right before God by keeping the law. And he says, she corresponds with present Jerusalem. So Paul is saying, in Paul's day, people in Jerusalem believed if you kept the law, it would save you. And he says, the other, she's free. She's from the Jerusalem above. 
One day Jesus will return. There will be a new heaven, a new earth. We await for that day. And he says the Jerusalem above is free. It's not based on works. And he's pointing, we're either living by the standard of the Jerusalem here on earth or the Jerusalem above. And he's going to point to these two women. Now notice he says in verse 25, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Remember I said this is a religion of works. And realize this, every religion on the face of the earth teaches basically the same thing. You do something and you'll get right standing before God. You work hard enough and you'll achieve nirvana. You'll achieve paradise. You'll achieve whatever. But you've got to do it. Every religion on earth teaches you've got to do something. That's all the false religions of the earth. That's what our enemy wants you to believe. It's up to you. Because guess what? You're always going to be wondering, am I good enough? Have I done it? Have I accomplished it? Have I done enough? That's what all religion teaches. That's the heart of false religion. And Christianity is so radical, our flesh almost can't handle it. You do nothing. Even as I say that, some of you are uncomfortable. You're like, wait a minute, like, I've got to have some works. We'll get to the relationship of faith and works next week. But when it comes to salvation, know this. No works save you. You can add nothing to your salvation. It's completely Christ. And here, he says, Hagar, this slave woman, is like Mount Sinai in Arabia. It's interesting. In our Bible, we can understand a lot of how the world is today by reading the Bible. Do you remember I said Abraham got hungry during a famine? I'm hungry. He didn't ask God what to do. Instead, he took care of himself and he went to Egypt. There he was fed. There he picked up a slave girl named Hagar. She gave birth to Ishmael. Ishmael, a child of works. And the religion that comes from him. And if you ask any Muslim, they'll tell you there's a point system. Am I praying enough? Do I go to the mosque enough? Do I give alms enough? I have to do all these things to have right standing before God. That's what all religion outside of Christianity teaches. All human-based religion teaches this. It's up to humans. That's the heart of human religion. It's up to humans. One true religion. God goes, I've got it. It's up to God. You can't do it. That's why Christianity is so radical. Our flesh almost can't handle it. We go, wait a minute. Surely I've got to do something. And God goes, my son paid for everything. Only thing you can do is trust and believe. There's nothing else for you to do. Jesus sets you free from that. Jesus has done everything perfectly. He's the one who gives grace for you. He is enough. That's the glorious good news. And for us, even many people who say, hey, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus. 
live more like a slave. There are Christians, and I believe sadly there's some of you here today, who live more like a slave than a free person. Going, hey, Christ is enough. Yeah, but I've got to add some works to it. Don't do these things if you're a Christian. Do do these things and we're going around looking down on everybody else. Christ came to set us free. And that's radical. Your flesh doesn't like it. Your flesh is uncomfortable with it. It's hard to really believe that Jesus is fully enough. There's nothing you can do to add to salvation. Now, Paul, he comes down in verse 28, and he's going to give us some application. So let's move into that. He says, now you brothers, he's speaking to the Christians, like Isaac or children of the promise. You're saved like Isaac was born by a miracle. Just at the time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. Three things I want to show you. The first, first point, first application. Christians experience supernatural birth just like Isaac. I've talked to people of other faiths. I was born into this faith. I was born a Hindu. I was born a Buddhist. I was born a Muslim. I was born a Jewish person. I was born this way. We never use that language, or I hope we don't. You're not born a Christian. You're born again a Christian. You're born a child of the enemy. And parents, I'll tell you, the greatest desire in my life for my children is that they know Jesus. I'm going to do everything I humanly can to work the soil to help make it possible for that seed to take root in them to know Jesus. But I can't force it. I can't make them know Jesus. I can put them in church, I can put them with Christian friends, I can teach them the Bible, but I can't make them know Jesus. No, it's supernatural. Only God can open their eyes. Now God can use me, and I can be faithful to be used. But every Christian, if you're here today and you've trusted in the sufficiency of Christ, that is a supernatural work. You have not done that. God has opened your eyes and you've stepped out in faith and trusted Him. In verse 29, it says that He who was born according to the flesh persecuted Him born according to the Spirit. Second point, those who trust works persecute Christians. Those who trust works for salvation will always persecute Christians. Wait a minute. You believe Jesus is enough? Show me your works. What have you done? How often do you pray? How often do you show up at a, a building and do certain things? Have you done a pilgrimage? Have you reached nirvana? Whatever it is, you've got to do something. You see, Ishmael, he would begin to persecute his little brother Isaac. And it's always been the case. Religion of works will always persecute a religion of faith. Don't be surprised when you're persecuted for your faith in Jesus. Christianity's radical. It's radical. It's unlike anything the world has ever seen or known or heard of. In fact, it's so radical that our flesh wants to make it less radical. Well, I'll believe in Jesus, but I'll, I'll do a bunch of good works. Well, that's not going to save you. 
Works aren't bad. We'll get to works next week. Christ alone saves you. You're not going to stand before God and go, hey, let me in. I believe in Jesus and look at all my good works. You say, those don't mean anything. They're filthy rags. Put those aside. You can't add anything. It's only Jesus. Many people operate like this. My good works got me 90% saved. I was almost there. Jesus finished the last 10%. It's not how it is at all. You are hopelessly lost, dead in your transgressions, rebellion from God, wanting nothing to do with Him. And Jesus came and supernaturally opened your eyes and saved you. Third thing in verse 30. He says, but what does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Did you hear that? God gives us inheritance through His Son, but you don't get it through works. You only get it through trusting Jesus. So He said, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Christians seek to cast out legalism in our life. When we talk about legalism, there's two ways primarily. One, thinking that anything other than Jesus can save you. That can be legalism. Hey, I'm going to be good. That's going to save me. I'm going to add something. But there's also a form of legalism that Christians have where they say, hey, I, I've got to do all these things, all these things. There's, there becomes a, a legalistic flavor where we begin to look and go, hey, if you're a Christian, you don't do that. If you're a Christian, you do do this. And we begin looking at everybody else and we go, hey, we're all sinners saved by Jesus. And when we see sin in other people's lives, we mourn and grieve because sin separates us from God. It pulls us away from Him. You see, we're not looking going, hey, because you committed a sin, you're awful and heinous. We all are. Jesus saves us all. We look and we go, I grieve your sin because it destroys you. It hurts you. In verse five, chapter 5, verse 1, listen to this. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Do you live as a free person? Christ came to set you free. He came to set you free from the shackles of this world, from the opinions of this world, from the ways of this world. He came to set you free. And He says, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit to the yoke of slavery. That's what the Galatians were doing. Set free through Christ, well, you've got to be circumcised. Yoke of slavery. You've got to keep dietary laws. Yoke of slavery. You've got to keep certain holy days. Yoke of slavery. Throwing them all right back on there. I heard it said there's four types of people. Law obeying and law relying. Those are people who go, I... I Obey the law, and I rely on it to save me. Those are the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Law disobeying, law relying. Those people are miserable. Hey, the law is going to save me, but I'm not obeying it. They're the ones who... Jesus came to a lot of those people that believe that. And He said, hey, I'm going to set you free. The law can't save you. I can. Then there's law disobeying. Not law relying. These are people who don't believe anything. They just do whatever they want. 
And this is who we're to be. Law obeying, not law relying. The law doesn't save us. We don't rely on the law. Why do we seek to obey the law? For freedom. We live freely when we obey Christ. So we want to live freely, we obey Christ. But that obeying the law will not save us, will not add anything. It sets us free. It's tasting that freedom, experiencing that freedom. So where are you in this? I've struggled with this. There's been scenes in my life where I've struggled with legalistic attitudes, legalistic behaviors. There's been times in my life where I've misunderstood freedom in Christ to think it means that you can just do whatever you want. When that's really just putting back on a yoke of slavery. Paul is addressing these things. Our freedom is found in Christ and in Christ alone. He's all you need. And church, I pray that we live in light of Christ's freedom and we stand firm in that. Let's pray. God, I confess that there's been seasons in my life where in various ways I've relied on things I've done. That there's been seasons in my life where I've misunderstood freedom to think it means you can do anything and everything or whatever. But that's just another form of slavery. Lord, our flesh, our flesh likes works, but they'll never save us. So Lord, I pray that if there's anything that's been said that speaks to the hearts and minds of people here, that you would open eyes and hearts to your truth. I pray that we would delight in the fact that you are sufficient. You are enough to save us. And Lord, now as we respond in song, as we sing glory in the highest, the most glorious news ever is that you save sinful humanity, that you save sinful people through your son Jesus. May we delight in that in Jesus' name. Amen.